All right, switching gears now, we'll get an update on the situation in Eastern Europe. And like I say, it's important to do this. Uh, the focus has definitely shifted uh, as the international community has been um, keeping a close eye on the situation in the Middle East. And, you know, for very good reason. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Uh, but uh, for a long time, there was a lot of focus internationally on what was happening in Ukraine. Again, for very good reason. But um, I think as attention has been shifted somewhat to the Middle East, it's also really ramped up the conversation around where is this going? That's the question around Israel. It's also the question around Ukraine, I think. And um, like I say, I was talking about this earlier this morning, if you weren't listening, um, Prime Minister of Italy, I don't know how this happens in 2023, but got pranked by a radio DJ. You remember that? Like back in the 70s and 80s when DJs with the phony phone calls? Uh, but these DJs somehow managed to get the Prime Minister of Italy on the air. Um, and she talked about Ukraine fatigue and she talked about, you know, trying, we need to find a resolution. This can't go on indefinitely, which is the kind of thing I don't know if she'd be saying publicly to anybody. Um, but she was under the impression she was speaking to a, a fellow politician from another country, I think it was or something. But regardless, she's out on air talking about things that I don't think she necessarily wanted to be public. But I think that sentiment that she expressed is being felt in other places, specifically the United States, where we know the Republicans have all but abandoned um, support for Ukraine, or at least some of them have, not all of them, but some of them. So the pressure is there as well. So what does it mean to what's happening on the ground in that part of the world? We're going to chat now with Andrew Rasoulis, a defense and Eastern European affairs expert with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Always appreciate your time. You're very welcome, Shay. What do you see uh, going on with the international community? Like I mentioned, the Prime Minister of Italy talking about it. We know what's happening in the United States. There is something called Ukraine fatigue that seems to be settling in a bit here. Yes, and that fatigue uh, was happening before uh, the war of Israel and Hamas in October. Uh, back in the summer, there were numerous polls showing that in particular in the United States, uh, there was a drop in support. And it was hovering around the 50-50 mark, depending on which poll you read, said either a slight majority against supporting uh, future armaments to Ukraine and, and the reverse. So the point is, at the 50-50 mark, it had gone down. The, uh, the prank call that you referred to with Maloney, the uh, Italian prime minister, that was in September. And that was, although the story came out later, but the call itself was September. And she was speaking already with that mood of Ukraine fatigue before the war. The war with, uh, that Israel is now fighting with, uh, with Hamas has simply exacerbated a trend that was already occurring. The net effect is that it's going to be even more difficult now for Ukraine to continue to rely on predominantly U.S.-supplied armaments and ammunition and finances to keep fighting the war of attrition in 2024. That's where we're at today. You mentioned the war of attrition, and, and that seems to be what everybody has sort of talked about. That's where we are now with this weakening in support or this Ukraine fatigue. And, and you know, the, the Italian politician talked about this. We need to find a resolution. Does this change the outcome of this? Does it get to a point where Zelensky says, OK, I can't count on the backing of the West, although the G7 came out and gave them their full support last week, but saying, OK, if I don't have that, I'm going to have to find a negotiated settlement. Like, how does it change the future of the conflict itself, Andrew? Yeah, well, I think that uh, it will change, uh, and, and it'll be despite uh, the political desires of, let's say, Zelensky not to do it, because I think 
he will have no choice at some point in time when the Ukrainians become exhausted. Yeah. And let me amplify that. that. That exhaustion can come in two different ways. One is equipment and finances and that kind of thing, which they depend on the West, predominantly the United States. So that may uh, shrink somewhat. I'm not sure if it's going to completely stop, but it's certainly drawing yeah. down. Yeah. But, but the real the real problem for Ukraine less so for Russia, but it's there, is people power. Because uh, Ukraine is not being resupplied with people. It is looking at resupply of money and ammunition, equipment, money, and but not people. People, they have to depend on yeah. their own pool. Ukraine has been fully mobilized. They've been fighting a war of attrition now. Well, the war itself is two years. The, the war of attrition has been a full year. We have been in a war of attrition since last December. And consequently, the Ukrainians are... Their people power pool, the available soldiers to man the weapons and the equipment that comes from the West is shrinking. Mm -hmm. And the Russians know that. And the Russians are, I believe, trying to wage a war of attrition that will, in their objective, eventually exhaust Ukraine at some point in time, perhaps 2024, 2025 at the outset, thereby changing the political calculus of the Ukrainians, because right now Zelensky is saying, no way, no ceasefire, we keep fighting until all Ukrainian lands are liberated, including Crimea. That is, a, that is an aspirational statement. The realities on the ground militarily may make that impossible for Ukraine. That that war of attrition, it seems like Russia, as you say, just in terms of sheer numbers and a willingness to accept thousands of deaths really tips things in favor of Russia outlasting Ukraine. Like you say, they have far more people and they seem at least willing to lose far more people. That's right. And and the Russians have fought many wars like that. Mm -hmm. That is very the way the Russians do things. And so we've been talking about that for, for, for months now. I mean, the, the, uh, you and I have had these conversations yeah. that I said that Russia would be driving into a war of attrition. And in the longer term, they, they, their, their, um, their interests are asymmetrically greater in doing what they want to do in Ukraine than is the West's. And they will continue, in my opinion, to drive and, and, and cause attrition and exhaustion in the West and in Ukraine in itself to achieve their objective. They have time, the Russians do. And I'm not one of those who thinks that Putin will be overthrown any day and a Western-leaning liberal will take over Russia and make peace. I, don't, I think that's a, that's a fallacy, and people talk about it sometimes, but that's grasping at straw stuff. The reality is Putin is going for a re-election in 2024. It's rumored it'll be at the end of March, and there's every reason to assume he will be reelected, and he will sustain in power. He has his factions. It's not he's an autocrat with factions, but he's in control, mm -hmm. and, he, yeah. and he has survived the various, you know, the turbulence of of, of, of the Wagner rebellion and Prigozhin and all that. He's he survived it. He rode that tiger. Um, what are we seeing on the ground? I know that uh, airstrikes on Kiev resumed over the weekend, first time in like seven or eight weeks since the capital was targeted. Does that tell us anything? Are we seeing anything different, or is it just more of the same? That stalemate, Andrew. Yeah, it's 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 how the Russians plan to run the stalemate because uh, so they, they there's there's two elements of that. There's the, uh, there's the battlefield itself, the front line, 
and which again has not moved strategically since last December, but there's a lot of fighting that's been going on all year on that line with Ukrainians making small protrusions, the Russians making small protrusions, and but burning up lots of people and equipment. Yeah, That will continue. And the Russians, I believe, they feel they can pressure the Ukrainians more than Ukrainians can pressure the Russians. That's the battle. On the behind-the-scenes thing, both sides are hitting each other with longer-range systems. <clears throat> so the Russians are, 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 are hitting uh, both military and civilian infrastructure behind, and they're trying to, I think, as winter approaches, they're going to try and once again hit the Ukrainian power grid. What they want to do is make the Ukrainians miserable and cold in the wintertime and disrupt Ukrainian military supplies coming from the center of, 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 uh, of Ukraine to the battlefield in the east. That's the Russian objective with these hits. The Ukrainians, uh, they have some capability uh, to do similar things, and they're hitting also Russian supply lines in the rear. And, and of late, uh, the Ukrainians have been hitting Russian supply lines in Crimea, mm-hmm. which is very sensitive for Russia. And Crimea is, a, is a, an important staging area for the Russians in their war in the east. So Ukrainians are doing something similar to what the Russians are doing. They just don't have it the same scale as the, uh, as the Russians have. So more of the same, and, uh, and it's just awful. Uh, Andrew, as always, I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much.